Hello and welcome back to All Things Urticaria, your UCARE podcast. UCARE stands for, you know this by now, Urticaria Centers of Reference and Excellence. And what we do in this podcast is we touch on questions of relevance, importance, interest. And again, we're doing this today, addressing a question that you had, one of our listeners. And that question is how to use antihistamines in the treatment of chronic urticaria. And I'm very, very, very happy to have with me Gord Sussman, my friend, fellow urticariologist. Hi, Gord, how are you? Hi, morning, everyone. It's a pleasure being here, and I, uh, it's an honor to be asked to speak with Marcus. Marcus is the rock star in chronic urticaria, so uh, he doesn't really need us, but it's a pleasure to be here. Ah, Gord. Uh, we've toured together, no, Rockstar or not. I remember many events that uh, had us speak about antihistamines and many other things in urticaria. Gord, why don't you tell our listeners where you are right now and what you do? I, I work in Toronto. I'm, my official title is I'm a professor at the University of Toronto in medicine. I'm staff at St. Michael's Hospital, which is a teaching hospital in Toronto. I have a big private practice in North York, uh, and uh, I also uh, have a, a research center and a biologics clinic and uh, a lab that we do some uh, basic research in as well. So uh, I sort of involved with everything, uh, but I, I'm mainly academic. I, I still consider myself academic, even though I'm up north. Involved with a lot of things and for quite some time now, so I'm glad to have all of your experience and expertise on board here. Let's jump right in. Antihistamines are, of course, everyone knows that, the first-line treatment for all types of urticaria. Yet, we see that a lot of mistakes are being made when it comes to using antihistamines. Um, let's uh, maybe address some of the uh, urban myth around uh, antihistamines. Some people say it's enough to take an antihistamine when you have the wheels, when you have the itch, when the angioedema is there. Gord, what do we say? We say as urticariologists that the antihistamine is taken daily. And it's very important to take a high enough dose so you can assess whether it works or not. And, and if you're not using it daily, you're not using it correctly. Well said, couldn't agree more. Um, this is for chronic urticaria, uh, which is a disease that lasts usually several years, sometimes longer. So we want to prevent the onset of wheels, the onset of itch, the occurrence of angioedema, not respond to it. And um, maybe to provide our listeners with some scientific support for the daily use. I'll go first, Gord. Uh, my argument is that um, it's good to think of histamine as the key that goes into its lock, the histamine receptor. And to think of an antihistamine as a chewing gum that you stick into that lock, into that keyhole so that the key doesn't fit anymore. And that it does perfectly, um, but it doesn't really work uh, once the key is already in. So we want to shut the receptor down before it gets activated so that when the histamine comes from all the muscles cells in the skin um, to produce a wheel, that does not happen. What's your favorite argument? Uh, I, I, I agree 100% with what you said, uh, because you want the histamine receptors blocked before, 
the other aspect of chronic urticaria is it's not external. You can't avoid a food. You can't avoid the histamine release. It's internal. It's, it's autoimmune. We know what it is, right? We yes. know what it is and we should know how to treat it. And that this is the correct way to treat it. So it's internal. It's happening all the time. If an antihistamine is going to work, you're right. The histamine receptors have to be blocked. Absolutely. I have a third argument. And I don't know if you taught me this or if it was Martin Church. I, I, I don't really recall. But um, these antihistamines, they block the receptor, obviously. Um, but they also change the receptor. Um, they are inverse agonists. Now, that's a big word for they have activity on the receptor that down-regulates the intrinsic activity of this receptor. So it's actually stabilizing the system, stabilizing the endothelial cells, uh, the blood vessels, so that it is uh, not so easy to get them to become leaky uh, and to vasodilate, which of course is the underlying mechanism of wheel formation. Very good, very good. Um, Gord. I hear sometimes from my patients, um, I took it, it worked, um, and uh, then I stopped taking it. And I, I, I asked, well, why did you stop taking it? Well, because I didn't have uh, the signs and symptoms anymore. So I think this is where the arguments that you and I just shared come in very handy. It is a long-term preventive effort so that people live without wheels and itch and, and angioedema and basically forget that they have verticaria unless they forget to take their, their antihistamine. So I think that I think that what we're getting at there, Marcus, is we that the, the, my favorite uh, line in the whole guideline is we treat it until it's gone. We're talking about chronic spontaneous urticaria. It's chronic. It, it, acute is different than chronic. Chronic yeah. spontaneous urticaria. We treat it until it's completely gone. We don't treat it till it's ninety percent gone. We don't treat it till it's ninety-five percent gone. Yeah. We treat it till it's a hundred percent gone. And we're not concerned about these newer antihistamines because we're not concerned about side effects. Absolutely. Well, we come to the safety and long-term safety in a bit. But you said something earlier that I thought was very important. Use them daily and use the right dose. What does that mean? Well, like we were saying with the histamine, they're inverse agonists. So updosing, there may be a usefulness uh, by taking an antihistamine four times the licensed dose. We used to treat with antihistamines in cocktails. We would use one H2, we would use two H1, we would use three H1, we would add uh, terbutaline, which was supposed to be a mast cell stabilizer. Uh, we would use a mast cell stabilizer, ketotophen. We would use all these antihistamines with the hope that we would do better. But in actual fact, uh, the research supports the fact that if we updose an antihistamine four times the licensed dose, it is better. And that may be because of the inverse agonist effect uh, of antihistamines. Some, yeah. like cetirazine, have anti-inflammatory properties. Some, like desloratadine, may have mast cell stabilizing properties. Some, like rapatidine, uh, may have uh, antipath properties. And some, like bilistine, may have anti-cytokine properties. So all the antihistamines have other properties that may also affect the uh, their use in chronic urticaria. And we may see the effect if we updose. We don't updose more than four times the licensed dose, but we updose to four times the licensed dose. Yeah, exactly. And when you do that, Gord, how do you do it? Do you go from one tablet per day to four tablets, or do you double first before you then come to the quadruple dose? Patients are concerned when they take four tablets. They say, oh, I'm taking so much, so many of these antihistamines, but I'm not concerned. 
Mm. So, you know, when they see me, by the time they see me, they've already taken an antihistamine. I I generally would just go right to four tablets without any concern. I I have no concern by using four times the licensed dose of these newer antihistamines that we're going to be talking about. That's exactly what I do. Uh, Patience is not my strong suit. And my patients, they um, are also not very patient with their disease. They want it gone. They don't want to uh, continue to have these signs and symptoms, and we need to bring patients to control, and we need to do that fast. It's a devastating disease, and uh, no time to waste here. Uh, I go from one tablet to four tablets, just like you, and I split the dose uh, so that uh, I ask my patients or uh, recommend that they take two in the mornings, two at night. I have good experience with that. Is that what you do? Exactly. I think... I'm not, if people want to take it as one dose, I'm okay with that, but I generally split the dose too. I, I think it, it just makes more sense. So most people, I think, do split the dose into two doses. Yeah, agreed. The other, the other aspect, Mark, is that, is that you, you do it for two to four weeks. If an antihistamine is going to work, it generally works by two to four weeks. If, it, if it's not going to be effective, we stop it. We don't continue it. We don't go to eight times a dose or 10 times a dose. We stop it at four times the dose. Good point. And that's also true for the standard dose. So if any antihistamine does not do its job by the end of the second week, it is time to use higher than standard doses uh, to see an effect. And, you know, there are patients, actually quite a lot of patients who, um, despite taking four tablets per day, still experience signs and symptoms. Not the topic of our episode today, but we need to know does antihistamine treatment work, standard and higher dose, in order to bring patients to a treatment that controls their disease as quickly as possible? Well, we come to another aspect that you already touched on. How safe are these antihistamines? And maybe just for those uh, who um, have not followed the long history of antihistamine development, we generally uh, distinguish between the old ones, and we call them sedating, tired making, and the newer ones, the non-sedating. But even the newer ones now, um, yeah, we've had them for 10, 20, 30 years, some of them, so they're not as new, and there are now um, newest uh, antihistamines. I remember you saying, I hope I remember correctly, the newer the better. Um, and, and of course, that makes sense, because uh, we want to help develop better antihistamines as we move along, coming from very old and very tired making antihistamines to now non-sedating antihistamines. Yeah, I, I would add, that I remember you saying, Marcus, these drugs are uh, were around in 1940, the older antihistamines, yeah. the, the first generation sedating antihistamines. And would you drive a car from 1940 when you could drive a car from 2010? Most people, or 2023, most people would say no, they would rather drive the new car, which is much improved, much more modern and much better, right? Good example. Oh, absolutely. Um, and that- yeah. The other, the other thing I wanted, the other point is that people don't have a sleep disorder. These antihistamines affect their sleep. They have an itch disorder. We're not treating them to put them into a coma sleep. We're treating them to try to treat their itch. Absolutely. And there's good data out there showing that these old antihistamines 
um, that they, well, they make people tired, but the sleep they induce is not good sleep. And um, it takes away the ability to dream normally, to process. And uh, there's a hangover, really, uh, when you feel tired and groggy in the morning after taking an antihistamine the night before. That's not, we, we don't need that anymore. That's, uh, those, those days are over. And the other point is that hangover effect is real. We didn't really realize it. But if people drive a car, they're likely more likely to get in car accidents. There's a lot of statistics showing that. And uh, more likely to get in, uh, into accidents. The Finkel study showed there was crush accidents and there was all sorts of uh, uh, different accidents that people get into when they were taking first generation and, and not when they were taking second generation. Mm -hmm. So, so the, you know, that's very important to realize with the, uh, yeah, it puts you to sleep. But when you wake up, you're not normal. When you wake up, you're impaired. And when you're impaired, you're more, you can't think properly and you can't function properly. Exactly. The sleep is not refreshing. Um, and like you say, you know, if you really wanted to help people sleep, um, then you would use modern sleep medication. But the point is that most patients with urticaria who do not sleep well, well, why do they not sleep well? Because they have these stupid wheels that like to come at night in many cases. And so the itch prevents the sleep. And uh, this is where we need to start. We need to start with the itch. We need to start with the hives. Once we have those under control, sleep normalizes and dirty carrier patients sleep just fine. So the target is blocking the itch-inducing and wheel-inducing effects of histamine. And the other, I think the other point uh, that is important to stress with uh, first generation is that you are concerned about overdose. You are concerned about uh, there's deaths of people that have, because they have all these non-specific effects. So you, you, there are real concerns about taking too many of those. Yeah. And you won't remember this, but in 1980, all we had was uh, first generation antihistamines. You know, they just came out in 1980. So these antihistamines are relatively new. Uh, all the guidelines, I think, around the world say we probably should not be using uh, first-generation sedating antihistamines anymore. Yeah. And I think if you walk into a urticariologist office, you will never be recommended to take one of these old sedating antihistamines. But the problem is they're still available, readily available. They're cheap. They're in supermarkets and drugstores. So you can just go and buy them. Um, and uh, that's not good. Um, I was I was in the U.S. just recently, and there's a whole aisle of uh, medication, uh, over-the-counter medication, that you wouldn't get in Germany without a prescription, and they include these old antihistamines. Yeah, same here. In Canada, it's exactly the same as the U.S. And not only that, but uh, people still recommend first-generation antihistamines when they are they don't really know. So we have to get the word out that they probably should not be used anymore yeah. because there's better drugs to treat. Yeah. Um, those are short-term side effects. You take an old sedating antihistamine and you will get tired. What about long-term? Now, we talked about duration of chronic urticaria, spontaneous and inducible, often many years. We do want to be confident that uh, what we are recommending is treatment that will not result in long-term side effects. What can we say about that? Well, the uh, the antihistamines that we recommend, second generation, I'm not concerned about long-term side effects or complications, even uh, uh, at four times a licensed dose. You know, I, I wouldn't worry about years of treatment. Yeah. But, but with the first generation antihistamines, because they have nonspecific effects on the heart and they have nonspecific effects uh, 
and they may affect memory and there's some links with Alzheimer's. There's, there's long-term side effects with memory and with functioning and with uh, accidents and cardiac side effects that were not recognized back in 1940 that were in 1980, but the ones from 1940 are still around. The ones from 1980 are not around anymore. So there, there are long-term side effects that I'm concerned about with older antihistamines. I completely agree with you. And, you know, um, the development of antihistamines now spreading 80 years um, changed quite a bit. No, for the old drugs, for the old antihistamines, it wasn't necessary to do big trials, long trials, trials in children. Um, all of these trials have been done for the newest antihistamines. They're very well researched. We know about their effects on the heart. We know about uh, their safety in the pediatric population. Um, so it is much harder today to license an antihistamine and bring it to the market, bring it to patients than it was 50 years ago. And that puts a lot of confidence into these newest antihistamine that underwent this whole program and passed all the requirements that apply to the licensing of a modern antihistamine. But we're not talking 50 years, we're talking 70, 80 years ago when these were licensed, they were uh... They were sort of grandfathered in. They they really didn't have the efficacy, efficacy studies, and they certainly didn't have the safety studies that would have been required today. Absolutely, no. I th I think it's a good thing to spread confidence in the use of these modern antihistamines long term, uh, including higher than standard doses. And maybe one more thing to add is that there are modern antihistamines that uh, we can updose without seeing a change in the safety profile. And I think the other, the only other point is that uh, you'll, you'll only know if someone responds to an antihistamine if you use it properly for a long enough period of time. About 50% of people will not respond to antihistamines even at high dose. And yeah. we don't, they're not to suffer because a lot of those people we lose if we don't really follow them. And we have to see them. We have to say, yes, there's better treatments. There's newer treatments. There's other treatments, which you talk about in other podcasts that are available and even newer ones that are going to be available. Agreed, agreed with you. Now, once we realize that an antihistamine, even at higher than standard dose, doesn't work, there's no use in switching to another antihistamine or adding an H2 blocker like we used to. You know, you, you shared uh, the cocktails that um, we had to go to before the days of omalizumab. No, um, the, the idea, and I'm coming back to your first word, is to treat the disease until it is gone and to do that with uh, the guideline recommended algorithm. And if the first line treatment fails, antihistamines at standard or higher than standard dose, clearly we should move to more effective treatment like uh, umarizumab. I, I just wanna mention, uh, Marcus, that this week actually, there's two things that happened that were important. Firstly, uh, the Lancet has reported the legalizumab, that's the high IgE affinity, uh, uh, drug and it was it, it was a unique study because they compared it to an active comparator mm. uh, which was omalizumab the phase two studies were very favorable the phase three studies showed it was equivalent to but it's still a pretty good drug and uh, I, I i'm glad that that is published it's important for people to realize that there's going to be other choices and the second important thing that happened is the top line results for uh, the remibrutinib, which is the BTK antagonist, which antagonizes BTK and also results 
results in decreased histamine release were very positive. Again, that's compared to placebo, not impaired, not compared to the active uh, drug, but like to omalizumab. But it's uh, it is still a major accomplishment, which has happened last week. So uh, as time goes on, there's going to be newer treatments and better treatments that are going to be available. We always want newer and better treatments for our patients. Agreed, and I'm really happy to see the eukaryology community work with partners in industry to help develop these better treatment options. And you're right, these are two landmark developments for eukaryology and eukarya patients. Very happy to see these positive results. Gord, I need to look at the time here. If, you know, we could be talking for quite some more. It was great to have you here. I'm not going to let you go before I ask you my final question, and that is, if you had a genie, but only one wish, and you could ask her, um, what needs to change to make the treatment, the early treatment of patients with chronic urticaria more effective? What do we need to do to bring good treatment to patients? What would that wish be? Well, uh, this is talking about chronic urticaria, right? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of other wishes, but for chronic urticaria, uh, my uh, my wish would be that we follow the guidelines, right? Because the guidelines are clear, they're very streamlined, and a lot of people still do not follow guidelines, which is sad because, uh, you know, there's a lot of urticaria people in the world that are not being treated. I mean, I think the estimate is 40 million people. Yeah. How many of those people are getting adequate treatment? Well, you know, most of them, uh, unfortunately, are not, and that's what we really need to change. Super. Gord, I couldn't think of a better recommendation and wish follow the guideline um, and the guidance it provides. Thank you, Gord, for being with us today. It was great to have you. I hope we can do this again sometime. Um, and folks, this is all the time we have today. I was with Gord Sussman, my friend and uh, fellow eukaryologist from Toronto, and we discussed one of the questions that you had. How to use antihistamines in the treatment of urticaria, chronic urticaria. So keep your questions coming. We will address as many of them as we can in this podcast. We talked about the guideline, we talked about the safety of antihistamines, and we will put uh, papers and other information to the show notes. So go visit that and follow the links. Do listen to some of our previous episodes that uh, are related to what we talked about today. And of course, don't miss the next episodes of all things urticaria. Uh, if you um, would like to leave feedback in whatever um, podcast platform you found us, uh, please do so. We love five stars. We love a recommendation. And of course, we love you to subscribe to all things urticaria. With that, thanks again, Gord. And thank Marcus, you. Marcus, it's always a pleasure. It's always a pleasure working with you. Super. Thank you. And um, all of you out there, stay well until we hear each other again. Bye-bye. Bye, everyone. Thanks a lot.